Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hey, this is Ted. Welcome to Spaßbremse. I'm excited to share this episode with everybody since I think it's both a particularly fascinating and extremely timely one. Today we're covering something I know a lot of people are talking about right now, and that's Germany's relationship with Israel. It's clearly a heated topic, especially in the wake of October 7th, so I wanted to make sure that when we did eventually cover this topic, we did so in the right way. Luckily, there is a book in English on just this topic, specifically the history and evolution of German-Israeli relations after 1948. I was fortunate enough to get a chance to speak with its author, Daniel Marvecki, about his findings and thoughts um, also on the current political situation grounded in his historical archival research on the topic. So as I said, speaking today with Daniel Marvecki, who's a lecturer in international relations at Hong Kong University. His book is called Germany and Israel, Whitewashing and State Building. It came out in English in 2020. There's a shorter German version coming out in February, so we will link to the pre-order page for that. And the, the background for this is looking at current German solidarity with Israel and asking whether it's really a continuous moral feature of the politics of the Federal Republic or if the reasons for that solidarity has actually changed over time. And so Daniel and I dive into this question in the interview. It's quite in-depth, and I found it extremely interesting. Um, we zoom in and out a bit between these detailed diplomatic developments and bigger-picture societal ones. So if you're not very familiar with events like the 1952 Reparations Agreement and the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, it's worth reading about them a little, so I'll include some links for background. And just a last note before we get to the interview, thanks so much to all our listeners and especially patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support us, you can do so in the link in the show notes, and that keeps the show up and running. And without further ado, we will cut to the interview with Daniel Mavecki. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Spaßbremse. We've got an interview we're really looking forward to on a, a very, very current topic, one that I'm sure people have been thinking a lot about if you pay attention to German politics. Um, that's the question of Germany's relations with Israel. And fortunately, there's someone who has written a book exactly on that topic. It's uh, Daniel Marvecki, who's a lecturer in international relations at Hong Kong University. So um, Daniel, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for the invitation, Ted. It's great to have you. And like I said, the the title of the book is Germany and Israel, Whitewashing and State Building, which came out in 2020. And this is obviously a, a very, very touchy topic in Germany. Um, there's a lot of very tense politics around it at the moment, especially as has erupted after October 7th, 2023, um, and the Hamas attack 
on Israel and then the, the resulting war in Gaza, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to wade too much into the kind of current, very, very tense political debate about that in Germany. I'm sure everyone who pays even a little bit of attention to German politics has seen this and, and probably has some degree of reaction to it. Um, obviously, there have been some sort of controversial, I guess you could say, cancellations of Palestinian and, and Muslim artists. There's been uh, a lot of letters written condemning Germany's uh, reactions. Um, basically, Germany has taken a very pro-Israel stance, and there's been some controversy over uh, over whether that's the right stance. I don't really want to get into that debate now. What I do want to do is examine that current posture of very, very unyielding support for Israel and ask if that is really the kind of continuous moral feature of the federal republic that it's often painted as. Because what Germany will say is, because of our history, we have to support Israel 100%. There can be no kind of deviation from that. And in some ways, you know, that's a, that's a very understandable thing to say. But the, the question I think we're going to be asking today is, while it is true that Germany has displayed a large degree of solidarity with the state of Israel um, you know, since, the, since the creation of the country, is the cause of, those, of that support, is that a continuous, a constant feature? Or, or has the actual source of the support changed, even as the level of support has remained roughly the same? And Fortunately, there is a book exactly on that subject. So, Daniel, could you talk a little bit about this period in the, the very, very early state of both the Federal Republic and the state of Israel after World War II? Could you talk a little bit about the relations between those two countries? Because, like I said, now it seems like, OK, there's this intense solidarity it's because of Germany's history, obviously, um, from the Holocaust and the murder of six million Jews, as well as millions of others. And so it's a very non-obvious outcome that a state led by a number of uh, former members of the Nazi party, uh, being West Germany, the Federal Republic, and a state comprised of a significant amount of actual survivors of the Holocaust would have any kind of close relations, um, you know, anywhere, uh, anywhere in the, the near vicinity time-wise of those events. So, yeah, could you talk us through just kind of the general outlines of Germany-Israel relations in the late 40s, early 50s, before, before we get to 1952? Yes. So... As you were saying uh, in the beginning, today German politicians really frame the support of Israel in moral terms, and they absolutely mean it. Right? This is a very identity-based moral uh, discourse that is very uh, serious and goes to the heart of the state. Right? It's the Staatsverson. But the history uh, of that positioning of that support is quite unknown also to German politicians, right? And that is one of the ironies I try to uncover in the book, because as you were saying, in the post-war era, things look very differently in Germany. Now you mentioned the title, Whitewashing and State Building, and that title sums up the whole story into words, right? What Germany needed in the beginning was to whitewash its immediate past. Uh, it was a state you know, created almost by the former elite, right, uh, Nazis. 
Um, and what Istro needed was everything to build its own state. It needed you know, industry, it needed weapons, it needed financial aid, all of that. And Germany was able and willing to give that, right? Um, for reasons that had very little to do with the moral discourse of today. So the title really encapsulates the main story. Now, this doesn't mean that things haven't changed. They obviously have, right? And especially in the 90s, you have um, a you know a huge uh, memory debate in Germany that you know changes the country to a great extent. We can talk about that, but the sort of like the gist of the book, um, the I think the importance of the book lies in uncovering you know that post-war uh, story. And there are again two elements to that story: the whitewashing of Germany and the state building of Israel, because it's not very well known, but. Before 1967, I argue in the book, it was Germany that supported Israel, you know, with weapons, with financial aid, with industrial aid. And really before 67, when the Jewish state in the Middle East was very unstable, Germany was its most important, uh, its most important ally. You know, that's one of the main arguments in the book. Maybe not ally, but supporter, right? Because you don't want to publicly ally with such a state. But uh, yeah, it's a very ironic um, history that I think can shatter many sort of mythologies in Germany uh, today. Exactly, because you have then in 1952 the start of the reparations agreement between Germany and Israel, and you cite some survey data that only a couple months before December 1951, uh, Germans were polled, and only five percent of them admitted to feeling guilt towards the Jews, and many said that the Jews were partly responsible for their fate. Um, so really, I mean, really striking, like alarming, yeah. uh, alarming responses there. Um, and at the same time, Germany is providing uh, key sources of, of aid for the Jewish state. So as we said, it's a very, um, it, now it's sort of, now it seems like a sort of natural um, outgrowth of this, of this horrible history. Um, but but at the time, I mean, that's a that's a wild thing uh, for for there to be that much support and actually that little sympathy for the victims from the Holocaust. Absolutely. And what it really shows is the disparity, the endless disparity between human emotion on the Israeli side, the Jewish side and the structural interests of the state. Right. Uh, I mean, relations with Germany led to the biggest crisis um in the early years of the Israeli state, right? The Ben-Gurion government was almost toppled over, you know, this question of whether reparations from Germany should be accepted, right? But the argument was on behalf of Ben-Gurion that you have to make deals with the devil of yesterday to meet the task of today, right? So this absolution of Germany uh, really is due to the dynamics of the Israeli-Palestinian and the Arab-Israeli conflict, right? Which is why Germany is implicated in this conflict in so many ways until today. Right. And the you talk about this structural, the, the structural convergence of corresponding interests is the phrase that you use, um, which is a, a very nice way to put it. And of course, there's a big asymmetry in the financial uh, means of Germany and the, the financial needs of Israel. And so what you have is a, um, you know, again, you have to kind of look back in history and, and think about the differences. Israel now um, is a, a very wealthy country with, I think, a, a higher GDP per capita than Germany. Not the case at the time. 
And so Germany, despite the wartime devastation, is you know, a relatively, a relatively well off place. And so the actual aid they give to Israel is, is not a significant financial burden on Germany. However, it's it's a huge lifeline for Israel at the time. And I think that that imbalance is really um, is really important to understanding actually what's going on. And like you said, why um, why a state comprised of of many people who had survived Nazi Germany was willing to accept aid from many of those same people. And this is a there's an interesting kind of terminological thing here between. So um, I think. We get to we get to 1952 now, and this is where there's actually an official reparations agreement between the two countries, um, sometimes known as the Luxembourg Agreement. And there's uh, there's interesting differences in the the terms that are used by both um, both Israel and Germany here. Um, you have to forgive my pronunciation, um, but in in Hebrew it's known as shalumim, and in German, it's the Wiedergutmachungsabkommen. So could you talk a little bit about the, the meaning of those two terms and how that reflects uh, almost these two, the, 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 the title of your book pretty well in terms of the uh, how each side understands the purpose of this agreement? Yeah, so the Shilomim agreement for the Israelis was something very different to the Wiedergutmachungsabkommen for the Germans, right? So for the Israeli side, and this was made clear you know, very often in all public pronouncements. This was not a question of forgiving the Germans or absolving the Germans. Right? Uh, this was not a debt paid, but some of the stolen property being given back. So there was no question of forgiveness. Right? The word Wiedergutmachung is very different. Uh, what it means is to make good again. Right? And it has this weird uh, connotation with German fairy tales, right? Uh, something bad happens, but then you can sort of like make up for it quite easily. And it's like absolved. And it sounds very childish in a way. Uh, Konstantin Goschler, a German historian, has written about that too. Uh, so, yeah, the, and the implication is, but I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely brutal. Basically, we kill six million and then we pay a bit of money, we give a few weapons, none of that, you know, hurts us at all. And everything is forgiven and forgotten. Right. Uh, and this was very much the German expectation, which also speaks against, you know, of course, the current sort of like moral uh, discourse. And I think the thing you were mentioning at the beginning is also very important for Germany. You know, Germany did not suffer from giving what it did to Israel. Right. Of course, Germany, you know, it had its post-war crisis years, but the Wirtschaftswunder uh, enabled Germany very quickly to be a lot richer um, than, than Israel, of course, in per capita terms. So on all metrics and stuff like housing, food, um, everything, Germans were better off. Right. And I'm, I give numbers in the book. I don't have them off the top of my head. Um, as to the GDP percentage, right, of German of German aid, uh, how much it cost the German economy, and it was quite a small investment. And interestingly, Ludwig Erhard also saw it as an investment in German rehabilitation, right? And he argued, you know, for this investment because you know it's not uh, too high. We need to sort of like you know rebuild our reputation, uh, and this you know is an investment in our future. He said, and it was. It worked very well for Germany. 
Yeah, and this, um, I think the Konstantin Goschler, he say his uh, title of German post-war reparations um, for Israel called Schuld und Schulden, guilt and debt. Yeah. And the the relation yeah. between these these terms is often framed as a different way. I, I really think of uh, people pointing out the similarity of the terms in a kind of post-Euro crisis way, saying, oh, well, you know, Germany mm-hmm. has this moral stance towards debt. Isn't that interesting that debt and guilt are, or are, are, are so similar, um, saying, you know, oh, that's why they need to, you know, I don't know punish, punish Greece for mm-hmm. having taken on debts or something like that. This is a kind of mm-hmm. interesting, uh, interesting flip on that where rather than the, the debt creating the guilt, the, uh, the, the guilt leads to the sort of payment of, of these debts. Um, and so I guess these, there's a long, long running German history with these two terms, uh, with a different relationship over time. And yeah, you, you mentioned Adenauer yeah. and, and a really, a really shocking quote that I think probably needs to be said in this that emphasizes this point, um, of the kind of lack of, of moral stance in some cases is, a, uh, this is a little bit later, but, um, you know, Adenauer is often, often painted as the sort of like the, the source of, you know, the, the Vespindung, uh, the solidarity with Israel, all of this, uh, Merkel's famous speech in 2008 in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. She said, you know, I'm proud to be a member of this party with, you know, Adenauer has, has always kind of, you know, pledged that we need to have solidarity with Israel. I'm very proud to carry on that tradition. And, you know, like we said, on the financial side, maybe there's something there. On the actual rhetorical moral side, leaves something to be lacking. Um, where he says in 1965, I believe it is, you say, furthermore, the power of the Jews today, especially in America, should not be underestimated. That's Adenauer's words, justifying why they need to show support for Israel. And basically, using anti-Semitic language to justify support for Israel. A pretty, a pretty shocking a pretty shocking statement. Absolutely. And you should also mention the first part of the quote, we says that we need to pay something in order to repair our international image, right? So rehabilitation plus this lingering anti-Semitic prejudice of Jewish power, they really, you know, combine, I think, in the German post-war thinking. And you can spin this further by looking at the first German ambassador to Israel, uh, who started his position in 1965, Rolf Pauls, who was an officer for the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front. And I have, you know, a number of quotes from him where he says that, you know, Jews, especially in America, control the centers of decision making and public opinion and so on and so forth. You know, so in order to appease them, we need to be forthcoming to Israel, right? So there's a real fear of, well, you know, Jewish influence, Jewish power by these former members of, you know, the, not Adenauer, of course, but others of the Nazi party, uh, Wehrmacht officers, and so on. And it's not surprising. Why wouldn't they be anti-Semitic, right? I mean, this is the same generation that had either supported Hitler or, you know, been at the very least sort of like tacitly uh like implicit um so there's really no surprise in a way but it's still shocking because it's so weird right especially when you measure it against you know today exactly and this is this is of course not lost on the israeli side um there was a huge backlash against uh, accepting this the, the the 1952 reparations agreement um which we talked about the, the various terms for it in each country um those attempting storming of the knesset in january 1952 
But Ben-Gurion, leader of Israel at the time, really wanted to embed Israel in the Western camp, which again was a, was a very non-obvious thing at the time. I mean, there, was, uh, there were a lot of communist and socialist elements in the country. Uh, initially, some communist countries like the Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, uh, supported um, Israel. And so, you know, again, we, we now see uh, the, the U.S.-Israel alliance as such a, uh, such a natural part of international affairs, but that was not the case um, nearly to the same extent at the time. And a lot of Israeli politicians had, you know, they really couldn't tolerate a, what they called negotiations with a pro-Nazi regime. Um, but financial concerns went out and, and Germany proves to be a really, really important source of support for Israel. And you kind of continue the story. Um, I mean, the story runs all the way up almost until the present, but uh, the bulk of it goes until 1967. After um, the Arab-Israeli war in Germany, uh, I should say the, the, the U.S. really takes over the majority of the support in, in percentage terms. But this, this earlier point in time is where you argue, as you mentioned before, that Germany proves this kind of critical source of support to Israel. And then that you know, its support ultimately playing a very significant role in its military success, especially in 1967. Um, so let's move forward a couple years um, and the, the the Suez crisis, because against this shows that, um, you know, U.S. support at the time for Israel was not uh, was not quite as steadfast or unconditional as it is today, um, whereas Germany continued to support them a lot. So could you talk a little bit about um, Israel's role in the Suez crisis and then how. Um, how, how German support as opposed to uh, U.S., uh, the sort of towing a more neutral line between um, Egypt and Israel, um, how, how those relations differed and, and the impact of that. Absolutely. Um, first, to go back to a prior point you made, both Menachem Begin and David Ben-Gurion were right, right? Begin was right in saying that this you know, reparations agreement would really help with the German rehabilitation, and that would be unjust because it's a bunch of you know former Nazis basically uh, in that government or in the structure of that state, and of course within society. Uh, and secondly, Ben Gurion was also in saying that yes, this might be true, but it's really going to help us build our state, right? So both were right in a way. So let's you know, move forward a few years, the mid-1950s, and Nasser of Egypt nationalizes the Suez Canal, and France, the UK, and Israel, all for their own reasons, decide to invade Egypt. And the calculation is that once underway, the US would support the attack because it's an attack against Arab nationalism and its figurehead, Gamal Abdel Nasser, right, which posed a threat to Western interests in the Middle East. And so what happens is that the Germans are very surprised by the attack as well, but totally support it, right? Uh, Adenauer is really sort of like a colonial uh, figure as his biographer Hans-Peter Schwarz put it. But the US actually works together with the Soviet Union to call off the attack. And in doing so, the US shows that now it plays, you know, the major role in the Middle East. France and Britain are out, and Israel is now seen as an imperial outpost by Arab states, right? So strategically, um, this came at a heavy cost for Israel. And what this shows is that, again, in these early years, Germany is a lot more important for Israel than the US is. 
or anybody else really because the main point here is not to look only at preparations or you know financial loans or weapons but at all of those three things together so germany is the only country in that period to extend to israel all these three forms of support military financial and the industrial aid given by the reparations agreement because the reparations agreement was basically a program to industrialize and hence build the the israeli state um yeah and this then switches after 67 or changes after 67. and so leading up until 67 then um you have the the, the U.S. still wants to support Israel to some extent, and then so is also kind of funneling aid through uh, through Germany. And so, could you talk specifically about the uh, about the military aid to Israel leading up to 1967? Because this is is really the kind of uh, the the crucial war that helps um, kind of cement Israel as the the preeminent military power in the region. Um, so, could you talk a bit about specifically that that military aid and some of the um, the actual like the actual um, material impact that had on Israel. Yeah. So before 67, the US only gave defensive weapons to Israel. Uh, France was important in selling to Israel um, its fighter jets, the Mirage jets. Germany was important in giving its weapons for free. So Shimon Peres, who was the defense minister uh, at the time, wrote a book uh, where he said that, you know, Germany was extremely helpful because it gave us these weapons uh, for free. Germany also bought weapons from Israel to help the Israeli defense industry. And the U.S. position is really, you know, the more important one. What changed in the mid-60s is how the U.S. thinks about Egypt. Uh, so before, it was a question of not... Uh, creating too much hostility with Egypt because Nasser was so influential in the Arab world. Then, as Egypt became too much of a threat, um, you know, it had to be balanced, basically, right? Because Egypt was, you know, getting weapons uh, from the Soviet Union. Uh, so it was a question of balancing um, the Egyptians via the Israelis. And so in 1965, the U.S., it's, it's sort of a complicated history, but the U.S. basically um, creates this deal whereby it uh, supports Israel with tanks that are supplied via Germany, right? Because Germany is, you know, this pro-Israel country and the U.S. still wants to be seen as geopolitically neutral, right? Which then totally shifts after 67. So actually the period between 65 and 67 is the period where external support for Israel switches from the Federal Republic of Germany toward the U.S., and this is why the pre-67 history is so important, because after 67, as you mentioned, Israel becomes militarily dominant. It wasn't that like that before, right? I mean, its existence was you know, very much threatened in the region. Uh, and after 67, the U.S. commits to supplying Israel with everything it needs to beat its adversaries at any time, right? Which is then demonstrated at a much higher cost, of course, for Israel in 1973. But Germany takes a backseat position, which it has until today. It's very important for Israel, especially in the European Union, but, you know, of course, very much overshadowed by the US. So the idea of the book of the, of the book is to show that this was different 
prior to 65, 67. That's the important sort of like transition period. And yeah, like you said, this is a, it's a kind of a, a complicated argument and, and very intricate with these specific dates. Um, and there's a, there's a few quotes, I think, that are really important and kind of uh, show this relationship at the time and how it how it changes. Um, I'm going to quote a little bit from your Le Monde piece, which we'll also link to here. Um, but yeah, like you said, you point out that between the 1956 Suez War and the decisive Arab-Israeli War of 1967, Germany, along with France, became Israel's most important military supporter. Shimon Perez, the main architect of the military relationship with both the Federal Republic and France, said, quote, the USA helped with money, but not with weapons. France helped us with weapons, but not with money. Germany could build a bridge over the past by delivering arms without demanding money or anything else and build a bridge over the past. I find a, a fascinating term. Another another interesting metaphor in our, in our list that we've been going through. Um, and you go on to say is that the archives of the German Foreign Office show that military support began in 1957, then just with light weapons. But after the first major arms deal in 1952, a decade after the initial reparations agreement, Germany then begins to deliver, deliver heavy artillery, planes, helicopters, boats, and submarines. And then later, as we talked about, the U.S. sort of starts funneling weapons through Germany um, or, or hoping that, um, you know, the U.S. wants to support Israel more, but doesn't want to seem like they're not a kind of neutral arbiter in the Arab-Israeli conflict. And so they pressure Germany to add 150 patent tanks. Um, and as you say, and, and until 1967, uh, the U.S. wanted to appear neutral in the conflict. After 1967, I guess the U.S. kind of wants to, they see a winning horse and they they decide to bet on it. And then then the rest of the history um, becomes more similar to the one we know it today, with the U.S. as this main military backer and Germany, as you said, still very important. But I think I think that history um, is is really crucial. Um, and it you know your whole your whole book kind of. It kind of hinges on that and and especially the the kind mm. of weapons that that Germany was able to give to give Israel at the time um you know there was the French Mirage jets were very important but a lot of the German delivered tanks showed uh, were were really superior towards um, against the um the the tanks of the the Arab countries and contributed to Israel's really uh, dominant performance in that war yeah no i think you're completely right in, in, in pointing all that out you know without those tanks the ground campaign you know would have looked different and israeli military officers said as much to you know german representatives and this victory in 67 was very much seen as a western uh, victory right which it was geopolitically speaking even though it was of course at its root a local conflict between arab states and israel so no, um, I think you've summarized the book better than I uh, could have there. Uh, yeah, I think the important thing to underline still is the cynicism, I think, of that game, very much on the German side as well. So Germany always made its support contingent on the Israelis not saying, you know, bad things about the Germans. And there's an episode in the book where I talk about the Eichmann trial, where you can really see how, and Tom Segev has written about this, German historians have written about that. So it's not, you know, it's not me uncovering uh, all of that stuff, but you can really see how um, Ben Gurion tried to sort of like take Germany, post-war Germany out of the trial and convict Eichmann 
you know, in the name of Nazi Germany, but absolved the current Germany, right? And instead the Arabs were sort of like painted as, you know, uh, yeah, the new Nazis, um, basically. So the Eichmann trial is an interesting chapter in this story of German rehabilitation, which is very much a geopolitical one at the end of the day. This is, yeah, this is a really fascinating episode that I'm, I'm glad you highlight because it's, it shows this kind of, uh, this this desire to separate you know a, a perpetrator of german crimes from from germany itself um, and you know obviously there's a there's a big unwillingness to do that in, in some parties but the sort of more realpolitik uh, geopolitically minded elements um, are really really insist on on that separation um say you know no convict the man don't indict the don't make it indict the country at all yeah but I mean, you know who the right man, very much to the right of Adenauer was at the time, right? Hans Globke. And this is a man who wrote a commentary on the Nuremberg Laws. Uh, so he was very much, you know, a establishment figure in the Nazi period. And these were the people that were still helping to run the show in Germany, right? So, you know, this sort of like division between post-war Germany, Nazi Germany, was very artificial, right? And I mean, you know, probably better than I do that, you know, Hans Morgenthau, Winston Churchill, they all had initially quite different plans for Germany, right? To de-industrialize the country and so forth. But at the end of the day, Germany was needed in the Cold War. West Germany was born as a frontline state in the Cold War. And the whole relationship with Israel really follows from that, right? Because Israel really just, you know, they saw how the stars aligned. Germany was going to be Germany and Germany was going to be rich and powerful again. Uh, and Germany was seen as a road to the actual price, which was Washington, right? Uh, I mean, Washington, American support, of course, was always, uh, you know, the big price, not European support. No, absolutely. And I think you can see this story we're telling, um, not as a parallel, but certainly, um, certainly related to some of these other ideas of, of um, these other stories of post-war Germany and its move to the West um, and the sort of rewriting of history from that. I mean, we did one on the, the clean Wehrmacht myth with Jan Tattenberg. And I think like this, it's all, it's all part of the same kind of the, the instinct of, of this, you know, I guess you could call that a, an episode of whitewashing as well. Right. And mm -hmm. so both separating the um, actual Nazi criminals from the sort of good rest of Germany is part of this, you know, with Adenauer, for example, saying only a, only a tiny fraction of Germans helped uh, um, participated in the Holocaust in the same kind of way that the idea that the, the the Wehrmacht was good and the only the SS was bad. So the desire to make that separation of wartime Germany was very important. And then there's this desire to separate Nazi Germany from the Federal Republic. So those those dual needs of separation, I think, are are present in both the clean Wehrmacht story and this story. Absolutely, I totally agree. And then there's even more, uh, more than that. When Adenauer and Ben Gurion met in New York in 1960, Adenauer told Ben Gurion, "I quote that we also have lost six million of our people. We are in the same situation, right?" So he really sort of like, you know, equates uh, the Holocaust with, you know, the German defeat uh, in the Second World War. So it's not only that, you know, Germany of today is completely separate to the Germany of yesterday. Also, 
you know, there are those similarities between Israel and Germany in terms of victimhood, which is truly crazy, right? And I mean, the files are there. I mean, the historical record is quite open, right? It's available. But I don't think anybody has really written about this yet, which I find very strange, but it's not a very sort of like pleasing uh, story, of course, to post-war Germany. Yeah, but this whitewashing is really, you know, it, it goes very far. Right. And, you know, you talk about the the desire to compare, uh, compare victimhood. And that's an important part of the story here. I mean, you know, that's that's a, in many ways a kind of a, a founding myth of of the Federal Republic. Um, I guess like the, the Robert Mueller uh, um, you know, search for a usable past in, the, in Germany, like that, that's that's mm-hmm. part of it relating a little bit more to the to the expulsion from Central Europe. But this idea to paint Germany as as a victor, um, as a victim is part of it. And you talk about yeah, this, this desire to sort of compare victimhood between Israel and Germany. Perversely, there's also a desire to paint the triumphs of Israel post-war as parallel to the triumphs of the Wehrmacht in the war. Um, you talk about, uh, you talk about some of the Springer press after the 1967 victory, um, talking about that as a blitzzig in the Israeli and actually using the word blitzkrieg as well to describe the, the rapidity of um, Israel's triumph um, and also complementing uh, some of the Israeli generals by comparing them to Wehrmacht general Evan Rommel. Um, so the, it's this, it's this bizarre mm. thing where there's these comparisons where the, the victimhood is the same, but the victories are also drawn parallels to in a, in a, in a very, very, in a very, very eerie way. Yes. So the Blitzsieg and Blitzkrieg quote that is, if I'm not mistaken, from Rudolf Augstein, right, of Der Spiegel. And then the Springer Press, which, of course, you know, is very important for the sort of like pro-Israeli positioning today, also was very happy to see, you know, the Arabs defeated. And, you know, an interesting post-war figure, Ulrike Meinhof, because before she went mad, uh, basically said in concrete, you know, the left-wing uh, journal that, you know, Germany had finally won its campaign with the Israelis as proxies, right? It has won its sort of like, you know, North Africa campaign uh, through the oh. Israelis. Uh, yeah, yeah. Another another um, wrong connection, right? Desert fight. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Sie rollten wie Rommel. I think this is the quote by, I think in Der Spiegel, they rolled like Rommel, right? So this is meant as a compliment, <laughs> you know? And there's more to that. I mean, there's some crazy quotes in the book about from Germans Nazifying not only the Arabs, but actually the Israelis, but meant as a compliment, you know? So this is where it gets truly uh, bizarre. And it just really shows how the policy toward Israel is part and parcel of this unmastered or unmasterable uh, past, really, right? And this creates these these weird, uh, you know, statements and ideological uh, configurations within the post-war German mind. Right. And you talk about, um, actually, I mean, some of this, like I said, some of these comparisons and and then the rhetoric is, is really alarming. Um, and yeah, the sort of as Israel is is founded as a as a nation, um, you have then yeah actually um, ger- um, you have German press now comparing 
the Jewish state to Germany in this kind of like um, using very like kind of Nazi and like Aryan language. Um, mm. I believe there was a a uh, um, you talk about at the at the Eichmann trial. Um, he uh, there's Gerhard von Preussen who talks about how the, the sort of the, a new type of Jew um, that's that's often very tall, blonde and blue eyed, um, which is, again, just just eerie to read the sort of saying, oh, well, like you know, people that were either complicit in or or um, or or let the Holocaust happen now using the kind of racialized language to say the people we used to want to exterminate now exhibit those characteristics in a in a complementary way. I mean, only. 15 years after the end of, of the Holocaust in some ways, um, yeah. in, in some cases. Yeah, let, let me let me quickly comment on that. Yes, so that quote is from the official German observer delegation to the Eichmann trial, right? The full quote uh, can be found in the book. It's just one of these things, when you find these things in the archives, it's really eye-popping, it's crazy, right? It's very hard to make sense of that in the the beginning right and then you know you you see how they form part of a larger story and i think israel always had two meanings in german memory politics a positive and a negative one right so the negative one is the one encapsulated by this you know pro-nazi quote uh, where israel is used as a way to absolve yourself whitewash your blood-stained vest you know and you know be a good german again Right, that's the negative aspect, and the positive aspect is that Israel, as the state that was founded, you know, to a large extent by by Holocaust survivors, you know, the Jewish state against anti-Semitism, it also forces Germany to, um, you know, direct attention at what was at the heart of the Nazi uh, project, right, which was um, the Holocaust, and this is of course something that East Germany never did, right, so. Israel, I think, always had these two functions, totally un- independent of, you know, what Israel is and what Israel does and what it says. You know, that's actually not important to Germany. Israel just figures as a chablone, how do you say, as a foil to yeah, formulate German identity, right? Uh, going in both directions. This, you know, negative one where you want to forget about the past and the, you know, better one when you want, where you want to confront it. Right. So it's really always had these two functions within the German discourse. But you have to separate, of course, between German debate, German memory politics internally, and the geopolitics of this whole thing. And this is what I try to do in the book. So it really speaks to two audiences, those that are interested in you know, the Middle East, its international relations, and also those that are interested in German memory culture, right? Because these two things go together. It's identity and realpolitik. And that leads to a question I wanted to ask on a, a kind of like bigger level, which is, you know, this state building whitewashing framing um, that you that you use, um, which I think is a, is a great way to think about it. But you say, you know, it's 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 Israeli state building and German whitewashing. Um, and, and as we talked about with the, the reparations agreement um, in 1952 and a lot of the, the aid, military aid leading up to 1967, um, that definitely is the case. Is there a way we could use this state building term and actually see it as part of the, the German story too, right? You know, obviously the Israeli state is, is literally building itself um, with a lot of the German reparations, but Germany isn't, isn't just whitewashing, as you say, in this kind of negative sense, there's actually a, a positive, it's a Germany's own, West Germany's own state building using this 
history and this kind of uh, not necessarily economic state building, but a kind of moral and historical state building that they're doing through support for Israel at this time. Totally. In the book, I call it material versus symbolic state building. And this is what I think it is, right? Because for Germany, you know, the state was already built. I mean, of course, you know, large parts of Germany were destroyed, but, you know, the big German sort of like capital stock, big industry and so on was not or could rebuild itself very quickly, right? So Germany as a material entity was rebuilt very quickly, very successfully, as we all know. What Germany was lacking and it's feeling that lack until today, of course, is a moral legitimacy to that country, right? I mean, if there's one country in the world without a right to exist, it would not be Israel, it would be Germany, right? To use a popular uh, phrase. So Germany really needed that morality. Israel did not, right? It was a state built in the wake of the Holocaust. And, you know, it had a huge sort of like moral support because of that. Germany had the opposite of that. So in a way, these two states are polar opposites, right? Uh, so what you have to think through is this, you know, fundamental opposition between these two countries that leads to this bizarre convergence, right, between those two. I mean, they were so opposite that they could really help each other. Uh, but yes, you're right. I think Israel really figures as an object within German memory uh, politics, right? So that's why German foreign policy in the Middle East and German debate about the Middle East are completely divorced, completely separate, because Israel in Germany uh, is about the German past. And then what German politicians do, or what German politics is in the Middle East, again, it's to some extent divorced from that. Yeah, we'll get into some of the, the complexities too, especially post-unification. Um, I want to talk about that moment. Um, but for now, I guess we can we can kind of run through the, the rest of the, the divided Germany era. Um, I'd have two main questions there. One is, could you talk a little bit about the um, about how East Germany framed this and um, and and the differences there? Because I think there's still a lot of problematic aspects of of its memory culture and this kind of focus on anti-fascism. Um, as opposed to actual uh, anti-Semitism during the Holocaust. And then um, and then I also want to discuss kind of a 1973 oil crisis running up through the um, the end of the Cold War. So could you just um, maybe discuss briefly uh, what what was the difference between kind of the, the East and West German approach to memory at this time? Yes. So as many other authors have already you know, outlined the East German approach was very different. And the historian Jeffrey Herf, who's been you know, quite critical of my book, he's written a book uh, about East Germany uh, and its stance towards Israel, which was basically following the, you know, the Soviet Union's uh, stance on that issue. I think, as you mentioned, Ted, the Soviet Union was the first uh, state to recognize Israel, right? And then, of course, it became very anti-Zionists uh, and pro-Arab over the course of the sort of like late 50s and 60s, because this was its own way to enter the Middle East. And the GDR reflected that stance, right? So there was no acknowledgement of the specificity of the Holocaust, right? Uh, if Jews received reparations, it was as victims of fascism, not as victims of German genocidal anti-Semitism, right? So in a way, West Germany really focused on the 
on the Holocaust, on the Jewish story um, during World War II. And the GDR focused on anything but that story. And there you get into this whole history of sort of like East German and Soviet Union anti-Zionism that gets mixed up to a large extent with anti-Semitism. Yeah, so completely, again, like polar opposites. And, you know, and again, these are reflections of their own geopolitical games in the Middle East. The East German side was trying to curry favor with Arab states. And Germany was, of course, you know, integrating Israel into the Western uh, block, the Western alliance. So again, it's, it's really a reflection of their different positionings uh, in the Cold War, mixed in both cases with the specificities of German memory uh, politics. And there's a couple of very good books on East Germany, so I haven't written about that um, very much in my in my book, actually. Yeah. No, I did. I just want to cover that that briefly to outline the difference. Um, mm. Yeah, of course, the book book mainly focused on the Federal Republic, so we we'll get back to that. But I I do think it's important just to highlight those at least Definitely. big picture differences so people can understand. Yeah. Um, and yeah so so yeah. moving back to the the Federal Republic now, um, I think the, the the early '70s is again a little bit different. With um, really, Brandt takes a, a slightly different approach. I mean, he talks about the. Um, the sort of new victims, meaning Palestinian Arabs, and the uh, the German New Left is is a, is a little bit more supportive of, um, and and then sort of willing to to, to qualify uh, German support for Israel, um, and so the, there's that at this time, and of course the the nineteen seventy two Munich Olympics as well, where um, two Isra- Israeli athletes um, were killed and nine taken hostage by a um the palestinian organization black september um could we talk a little bit about about this period and then of course you know the oil crisis beginning the the next year in 1973 which complicates the whole need for oil here so what's going on in this the the early 70s period and, and how does that play into your story yeah uh, two things. First, so the German radical left really mirrors the stance of the GDR, right? And it's like financially also supported in some ways uh, by East Germany. So it's radically anti-Zionist and very enthusiastically anti-Zionist, right? More enthusiastic than in other countries, right? Uh, for historical reasons. So there's that. And then Willy Brandt tries to distance himself first from the German new left but also from the CDU and other German conservative parties in trying to also make room for the Palestinian experience uh, of the conflict, right? Uh, And for Palestinians, what happened after 1967 is, you know, the realization that Arab states are not going to win their war for them, right? So they take up arms under the umbrella of the PLO, of course, with Fatah as the main Palestinian organization. So that's the the backdrop, right? And the conflict now really enters Germany for the first time. Before the Munich Olympics, Germany wasn't uh, touched by the conflict um, domestically, and now it is. And the irony of that, again, is you know, the whitewashing element, right? Granting the Olympics to a country is also a way of inviting that country back or into the so-called civilized uh, fold, right? So Germany, this is another milestone in the German re-acceptance, but it gets destroyed basically 
by Black September, which is linked to Al Fatah. Uh, so yeah, so this is the first time that you know the Israel-Palestine conflict is being played out on German soil. And you know, you can see a continuation of that today, I think, in the context of the war in Gaza. So a lot of the debates we are we, we can see now in Germany, they have their roots in the early 70s. And could you talk a little bit more about those, the, the continuities, um, and you know, yeah, through the through the rest of the the Cold War period and how this uh, these dynamics evolve or or don't um, during that time period? Because I think the next the next really big inflection point um, is is unification, and I think think we see some significant changes here. Um, and there's a there's a little bit more kind of stability or or continuity through through the rest of this period of the 20th century. So could you talk about what what kind of goes on for the the next about decade and a half, and then we can um, close out a little bit on, uh, on on the post unification moment and how that leads up until the present. Yeah, yeah. So I actually I forgot to answer your question about the the oil crisis, right? So on the one hand, you know, you have the emergence of the new left in the West, you have the emergence of, you know, the Palestine, you know, the, the PLO, Fatah, and so on, earlier than 67, of course, but now they take center stage. And after 67, especially after 73, of course, the Arab-Israeli conflict in a way ends because after Egypt gets back, you know, the territory it lost, it tries to make peace with Israel and manages to do so in 1979. So with Egypt out of the equation, the Arab-Israeli conflict really, you know, looks very different uh, from then onwards, right? So it now becomes, you know, again, the, the root, it, it goes back to the root of the conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian one, uh, the clash between those two nationalisms over that one territory. And Germany, as we've seen already, has taken a backseat position. It's not as important anymore. Uh, what is important to Germany, however, is oil, right? Uh, German industry had totally shifted to oil, uh, as had you know, the industry of all of Western Europe. And the Middle East was the main source uh, for that oil. So Arab oil producers back then, after they nationalized their oil uh, production uh, played out that uh, oil weapon, as you're mentioning, right? They're not playing out that oil weapon today, right? So there's a different stance. And the minute they started doing that, Germany shifted position on the Palestine conflict. And basically within, uh, you know, the European community, Germany and France formulate positions that are much more sort of like accepting or of the Palestinian side of the story than it used to be the case, right? And there you see this sort of like divide opening up between the US and Europe uh, over the region, which to a large extent, it has to be said, is due to oil and the willingness of Arab oil producers to play, uh, to use the oil weapon. And that's sort of the main story, uh, I think, geopolitically, uh, until unification and the end of the Cold War. And in accordance with that, Germany tries to normalize its relationship with Israel. So this is the big term that is being used in the foreign office, normalizing the relationship, right? This sounds totally bizarre uh, in today's years, because 
the relationship should not be normalized. You know, we don't want it to be normal because, you know, that would totally change, you know, the current identity uh, set up, the current role of Israel within memory politics. But back then, the idea was to normalize relations. And that's very much a function, a result of, you know, the need for oil. That was given up uh, in the 80s, however, and with unification, of course. Right. And now now moving to this, uh, the, the unification period, because this is where you, um, you know, obviously the unification, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, somewhat of a misnomer. Basically, you have East Germany being yeah. wrapped up into uh, into West Germany and the, the entirety uh, becoming the Federal Republic. So people are well aware of this history, especially if you go back and listen to our reunification series. But what that means also is not just the kind of the, the economic system of the West taking over in the Eastern, the, the, the Neue Bundesländer, um, and the political system as well. But in, in a lot of ways, the memory culture then becomes more broadly, uh, broadly homogenous across the country. And so that's not without its complications though. And there's also at this time, as Germany is now unified rather than, rather than these two divided states with different economic systems, there's a fear of uh, a rise of German nationalism because now rather than saying the federal Republic and the democratic Republic, people start just saying, you know, now we just have Germany as a sort of, uh, a sort of uh, an ethno national state, even though of course, very diverse, but this idea that there is now just a Germany it, uh, ignites a lot of fears of German unification. And in many cases, those are not unfounded. And there's questions about how this is going to actually relate to German support for Israel. If there's going to be a resurgence of anti-Semitism, right-wing sentiment, et cetera. Um, so what are the, the kind of the key changes that go on around this point in uh, especially the, the, the early 90s um, in terms of both the memory culture and German-Israeli politics? Yeah. So again, it's a question of how geopolitics, international relations and memory politics interact. So with unification or you know the absorption of the GDR into the FRG, Germany went back to its 1871 position. Right, too big to be one amongst equals, but not big enough to be the European hegemon. So it's the great destabilizer of the European system. Uh, this was solved by leaving Germany uh, in NATO and by preserving NATO. Right, there was, this was an important element, and by sort of like keeping up the American security umbrella over Western Europe. Right, so this was the condition under which France and Britain could accept you know, this new Germany, of which they were quite rightly uh, fearful, right? They didn't like the idea of German unification. They're, they were no fans, right? And yes, of course, this raised the question of how the policy toward Israel would change. And Israel was actually quite fearful, right? Uh, saying that, you know, Yitzhak Shamir, I think it was the prime minister at the time, who said, you know, that th this was a sad day uh, for Israelis, you know, German unification. But what happened was that Germany actually went all in on this pro-Israel identity discourse. It also went all in on the pacifist discourse, at least. I mean, it's still, you know, it was a major arms supply to many countries. So that's, you know, also quite hypocritical. But... You know, Germany, for all intents and purposes, 
was not a militant nationalist uh, country uh, or didn't turn into one uh, over the course of the 1990s, right? Things are changing now, of course, you know, because, because of Russia. Um, but yeah, back then, when you wanted to cash in big time on the peace dividend, and they did. So what Germany basically started was this, you know, basic foreign policy setup where you get your security from the U.S., your energy uh, from Russia, uh, you know, China becomes the main export market and Israel becomes a, you know, basically the main market for German identity, if you will, or the main uh, supplier of German, uh, of, you know, of, of, you know, Germans feeling good about themselves, uh, basically. Right. So this is the, the, the direction Germany, Germany takes. Um, and I think German politicians discover the use of Israel as, you know, a, a signifier for, you know, Wiedergutmachen at the end of the day, for making the Germans good again, you know? Uh, so I think that's what it is. Uh, and, you know, these changes are, of course, very much due to changes uh, in German memory politics, the historical Streit, the um, Paulskirchen, Paulskirchenrede by Martin Walser and the fallout from that. So all, you have all of these uh, events in German memory politics, which show how divided Germany still is about its past. But, you know, you have this move towards, you know, a certain usefulness of that past for German identity construction. Right. So when the Holocaust Memorial in, in, in Berlin was created, uh, the chancellor at the time, Gerhard Schröder, said that he wanted this to be a place where people would like to go. Uh, and, you know, a German historian said this you know, was supposed to be a place that other countries would be jealous of. Right. Eberhard Jekyll was his name, if I'm not mistaken. So Germany really discovers the usefulness, uh, if you will about placing the Holocaust at the center of its identity construction. So there's a, a bunch of important threads here that I, that I want to pull out um, that I think are all, all really fascinating and you do a great job of highlighting. One is this like Germany, they talk about the, the, the fears of a resurgence of German nationalism, right? And so Germany is aware that other countries have these fears. And so they, um, they really sort of, double down on policies that they think will uh, will allow uh, will, will assuage the rest of the world's fears. And so one of them is kind of doubling down on pacifism, as you talk about, you know, maybe that's eroding, um, but an important part for a while. And the other is really increasing aid and support for Israel to show, no, 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 like, don't worry, we, we still support you. This isn't some new, ugly uh, German nationalism that's coming back. Um, and the other, as you talk about, uh, and I, I really liked your your turn of phrase here of, uh, you know, Germany uh, in, importing American defense, Russian gas, and kind of Israeli as a Israel as a, as a source of moral credibility. And that's a that's a mm -hmm. nice little trifecta uh, there. And but this idea, um, kind of bizarrely, of of German pride and and identity, um, and and almost like a national marketing uh national marketing campaign derived from from holocaust memory um is it is a really 
fascinating part of your story. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes people saying this, this quite openly, um, that, you know, this is a kind of like a almost, I mean, it sounds so crass and horrible to say it, but like a unique selling point of Germany. And you often hear that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, you know, being from the U S it's like, it's one of the things that say, oh, I just really, really respect Germany so much for how it's coming to terms with the past. And that's like a, it's like a weird, yeah, like I said, almost, almost selling point or, or, or marketing tool of modern day Germany. Absolutely. And, you know, as, yeah, as we said before, this was the only ingredient that was missing from the post-war mix, right? Germany had the capital, it had the American support, it had all of that, you know, but the moral legitimacy that was very much missing. So a lot was invested into creating, into creating that. And that's obviously also good, right? It's a good thing that Germany is trying to work through its past it just has it just creates these weird byproducts that now perhaps threaten to become the main products right um yeah there's a usable past for german identity construction right you, you use the phrase you know the, the the nazi past is a patriotic project which is a which is a fascinating concept and yeah to be clear as you very mm-hmm. rightly said it's of course a very good thing to try to come to terms with the past I think it becomes maybe a little bit more questionable when that's used as a, almost a point of pride, um, where you're, you know, there's a, you're a Schulstolz, if, um, you know, where the, 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 uh, yeah. the where, where, where the, the, the guilt is now a, a, a source of, of actual pride in Germany. I think that's where it gets a little bit more, more questionable. And yeah, yeah. And, and, and let me, I, I start the book with a few quotes from a debate in the Bundestag from 2018, where the Bundestag, the German parliament, was celebrating the 70th anniversary of Israel's founding. And in that debate, Göring Eckhardt from the Green Party said that Israel's right to exist is our own. And this quote just epitomizes the German liberal or left liberal green SPD the Ampel coalition, if you will, at least least the SPD and the Greens, their mindset, right? But it really goes beyond that. It's all parties except for the AfD and large parts of Die Linke, which subscribe to that position, right? Uh, Israel's right to exist equates the German right to exist. So it really has become, you know, this, yeah, Sündenstolz, totally. And the AfD, you know, and and their... You know, that becomes ironic. They really try to link back to the early Adenauer days of memory politics, where you support Israel, but not to remember the Nazi past, but to totally forget about it, right? And victimize the Germans. So in a way, the AfD links back, I think, to the 1950s sort of memory culture, where you're really important for Israel, but Israel is used as a way to absolve Germany of everything. Absolutely. And now to, to close out, um, being conscious of your time here, um, as uh, it's obviously a, a subject that's worthy of a of a long episode, but I don't want to don't want to keep you for too long. But I think we've done a, a great job of, of covering a lot of this complicated history. And I, I want to close out on this concept, which you alluded to earlier of Staatsraison, which is it doesn't really translate to English very well, but like the French would be raison d'etat uh, and like the, the reason of state, but it sounds very clunky. Um, 
but I guess this this idea that you know uh, when you said Israel's right to exist is also Germany's, it, it kind of relates to that same idea. But mm-hmm. um, uh, Schultz has recently said this that you know the security of Israel is part of Germany's reason of state, and this is often brought back to um, this speech that Merkel gave in the Knesset in two thousand eight. Um, and I, I think some of the, the differences or almost evolution of this term is is really interesting in its own right because I'll just quote the, the kind of English translation of Merkel's speech. She said, I would like to say explicitly, every federal government and every chancellor before me was committed to Germany's special historical responsibility for Israel's security. This historical responsibility of Germany is part of my country's um, raison d'etre, Staatsraison, um, whatever, however you want to translate that, the reason of state. This means that Israel's security is never negotiable to me, negotiable to me as a German chancellor. And I think that's an interesting difference from what Schultz said, where he just said the security of Israel is part of Germany's reason of state. Whereas Merkel is saying a little bit more nuanced point here, um, saying the historical responsibility is the reason of state. And, and then from that comes the need to provide for Israel's security. And it's, you know, it's a little bit subtle, but I think I think there is an important difference there. Um, and And actually how. Uh, even since 2008, in the, that past 15 years, Germany has now kind of doubled down on on support for Israel, um, at least in a kind of moral and rhetorical sense, um, ultimately leading up to this very heated climate we see today where, where any kind of uh, supposed breaches uh, and lack of support for Israel are, are um, you know, kind of punishable with, uh, with career consequences and so on in Germany. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think of this this concept of Staatsraison um, and and as, as it relates to Israel uh, and and yeah I guess the the kind of doubling down and, and really strengthening of that idea in in German both you know memory politics and just sort of high politics in general yeah so the term Staatsraison of course goes back to pre democratic times to absolutist the the absolutist period in European history. Right. So what it already signifies is that the support of Israel, at least in terms of, you know, upholding its security is non-negotiable in Germany. And that's certainly the case. That's one of the identity pillars of German society and government. And I think you're right to say that this has become stronger since 2008. Uh, as you remember before, sort of like when COVID started around 2020, we had in Germany this Historikerstreit, right? 2.0 between a post-colonial camp and the Staatsraison camp, right? I think this was really the big memory debate in Germany over the past couple of years. And as I write in the new conclusion to my to the German version of the book, I think Hamas has helped the Staatsraison camp to win that debate you know, via their horrible uh, atrocity of October 7th. And so what you have now is a really intensified uh, Staatsraison discourse in Germany because Israel's security is fundamentally uh, threatened, right? Uh, it's not just about identity. I mean, Hamas has made very clear it wants to eradicate Israel, right? Every Israeli they can get their hands on. So Germany sees itself in a way by proxy, I think, in a as part of this existential struggle 
that is now taking place between Hamas and Israel, right? So the discourse you are seeing in Germany is on the one hand, a reflection of sort of intensified memory politics, but on the other is an extension of Israel and Palestine going back to an existential mode of conflict. And in Germany, we are very much part of that by proxy, right? So, yeah, I think this is to be taken into account the realities of that uh, war, which deeply affect uh, German society at the moment, right? With consequences that, you know, are going to be very hard to predict, but it's been certainly, you know, it has been a big blow to sort of like the the integration of German society, right? Um, I mean, we are seeing massive divides between sort of like population with an Arab uh, or Muslim background uh, and, you know, majority society. I mean, there's a massive rift in Germany. And this goes back in some way to sort of like the 1970s, but it's also new because religion plays such a big role. Yeah. I mean, recording this, uh, recording this from, uh, um, from down in Neukölln on Zonenallee, um, yeah. obviously a very, right. Right. Uh, obviously a, a very, a very relevant issue with the, the migration question. Um, and yeah. for, for anyone that hasn't go back and listen to our previous episode, one before this with, with Lauren Stokes about how, um, about, about those migration policies and how we kind of got to this, but of course, yeah, very, very inseparable from this question in some ways, especially mm-hmm. today as Germany is becoming ever more diverse and it becomes, um, more and more difficult to to maintain a kind of uh, a memory politics with a a country. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, Germany has this guilt, um, you know, so we need to all do this. If you're a, an ethnic German becomes it becomes kind of it becomes a very complex issue when there's people that have moved here after that. Say, you know, does does the guilt of this? Do I need to, like, uh, change my kind of views or or policies based on the guilt of a people that is different than mine and my family was not living in this country at the time. Um, again, there's a lot of political mm. complex political debates in the, in the present about this. I don't want this episode to be a, a, you know, a way to, a way to wade into that, but it definitely, definitely raises a lot of it's questions a- and you can see how, how people might feel a bit hesitant um, about sort of like being, being uh, moving to Germany is also, you, you don't just, uh, you don't just to sort of absorb it's, you know, political system and, and integrate economically. But, you know, because it's the Staatsräson, a lot of immigrants are being asked to say, no, you actually have to take on our guilt too. That's part of moving to this yeah. country. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're right. We would need to do another episode on that, but it isn't ironic that the Volksgemeinschaft of today, the community of sort of like ethnic Germans is the community of those that have a Nazi background, right? So you have the majority society, which is a society with a Nazi background. And then you have around one third of society that has a so-called migration background, right? And of course, you know, there's very different uh, stories um, between these two, well, parts of German, German society. And in a way, also Germany outsources its anti-Semitism to Muslim immigrants, right? So I do think there's, you know, issues with Hamas support or acceptance uh, also in Neukölln. But obviously, Germany also, you know, very conveniently, uh, you know, some parts sort of, like of the German government, the media escape, you know, are very apt at blaming anti-Semitism on Muslim immigration. And that allows you, of course, to be anti-immigrant and, you know, 
pro-Israel at the same time. So that's a sort of like tool that especially the far right, of course, has discovered. But I think this will become a tool in the mainstream anti-migration shift. It already has become such a tool, right? But this, I think, will only intensify. So it's a very complex um, issue that links, however, to a large extent, I think, to what we discussed so far. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, and you're obviously completely right. I mean, some of these stories about, you know, celebrations of the October 7th attack, obviously, um, you know, not not that far in the street for me, obviously, obviously not acceptable. But um, at the same time, you know, the Mm. the statistics are worth keeping in mind where all the reports of this is that um, anti-Semitic incidents from far right ethnically German groups massively outstrip those of Mm. of immigrant communities. And I think there is this very convenient idea that all of the anti-Semitism is coming from outside. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we we couldn't possibly uh, be anti-Semitic. Look, we support Israel. And as we've done in this episode, going all the way back to Adenauer, um, support for Israel and anti-Semitism can can coexist um, in, in, in the same people and, the, and certainly the same polity as well. Um, oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, maybe, yeah, one or two two things on that. I think the tragedy of the current moment is that you have this rise of anti-Semitism. So, you know, Jews in Germany don't feel safe, but also large parts of the population that has maybe an Arab background or is of Muslim faith, uh, they also don't feel welcome in Germany, right? So you have a disintegration of German uh, society uh, going on at the moment. Yeah, no, it's really um, the 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 fraughtness and 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 tension in the country has really mm. been been palpable in this you know last couple of months. Yeah. I'm recording this now about two months after after the uh, terrorist attack. Um, mm. Yeah, so I think you know I think we can kind of leave it there as, as far as the story and the history. Um, there's obviously a lot to read on what's going on currently currently in Germany. Um, we can link to a couple pieces that that share different perspectives on that. Cause I know that's on a lot of people's mind. Um, but as I said, yeah. the purpose of this episode is, is really to give that historical background and, and, and show, uh, because the ebbs and flows of German support, um, and, and how the, the, the sources of, of German support from a kind of moral or, or lack thereof basis, uh, have changed over time. And so I really appreciate uh, both your, your work on this subject um, and taking the time to discuss it. And as you mentioned, there is a, a German version of this book coming out very soon. Originally, this was published in English. Um, I believe it will be in, out in February of next year. Is that correct? Correct. So it's coming out with Wallstein at the end of February uh, next year. It's called Absolution, Israel und die deutsche Staatsraison. And it's a shorter, less academic version of the book we just discussed. So it's, you know, meant to inform the current uh, debate. So let's see how that goes. I'm looking forward to this publication. <laughs> I, I will, uh, I, I'm sure, certainly look forward to some uh, some some heated uh, reviews in the German press. So we'll, we'll maybe yes, have to do a little, yes. a little update on that because I'm sure that will uh, yeah. provoke, provoke a lot of debate. I hope it will. I hope it will. But again, the book is meant as a Stück Aufklärungsarbeit, I call it, right? It's really meant to illuminate German post-war history. And it doesn't really take too much of a side in all of this, right? Uh, and actually, you know, people from all camps have, you know, like the book, it's really strange, but I have, I've had great conversations uh, with all kinds of people 
um, about it that, you know, I think take something out of it for their own political reasons. But the more I worked on the book, the less political I think I became in a way. And the more I became interested in just sort of like illuminating this really strange history because it's a bizarre story. So I think what I try to foreground is the strangeness and the contradictions of the German engagement with Israel. I think this is really the main sort of gist gender of the book. I try to sort of like twist German minds around a little bit. Well, that's good. It definitely twisted my mind a bit. I really, really enjoyed reading this. Okay. I'm, sure, I'm sure people can tell from <laughs> the, so much. the conversation. It's a very winding story and it's hard to keep straight. So I, I encourage everyone to read it. Um, we'll also link to the, the shorter piece, which outlines um, outlines a bit of this in case you don't have, have time for a whole book. But it's a it's a very important thing to do when there's such a such a heated, uh, intense moment is take a step back and, and think about the history mm-hmm. of this. Um, you know, and yeah, just to just to understand what what's going on, and people have their own political uh, takeaways. But just just really learning where where this comes from, and like you said, you know, it's not a not taking a political side, but just trying to just trying to understand the origins of this and 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 read these these leaders um, in their own terms. And and so when people say things, when Merkel says, you know, I'm proud of this, uh, you know, steadfast support for the Jewish people since Adenauer, and Adenauer saying something anti-Semitic, yeah. uh, it's, it's worth pointing out. Yeah. And so I'm I'm very yeah. glad that yeah, you've yeah. you've done that work and and actually gone into some of these archives and and made these points. And so I um, very much yeah. appreciate that. Thank you. You know, at the end of the day, uh, what we have to do is deconstruct mythologies right and this is what this book tries to do you know deconstruct the post-war mythologies around the relationship with with israel i think that's our job as historians scholars academics first of all yeah absolutely and done done great job of that like i said we'll link to all of this um anything else to share or where people can find your other work um if there's a pre-sale link we'll definitely uh put that in the show notes um otherwise we'll just uh retweet you when when that does come out so yeah, any anything else yeah. on uh, that note? So, so the English version of the book got published with Hearst, which is a great publisher based in London. I do think they have a Christmas sale going on at the moment. I'm not sure, but okay, maybe we'll link to that fifty percent yeah. <laughs> off. Uh, I'm not quite sure if it's still going on or not, or if it's going to be uh, the case. And yeah, and the book can be pre-ordered from Wallstein for. You know, the price of a normal book, not an academic book that was very important to me. So I, I cut it short. You know, it has like 170 pages or so and uh, no footnotes. So you know, I made a point of not having any footnotes. But of course, there's also my doctoral dissertation, which I think can be downloaded from the SOAS library. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Well, we'll link to all that. All very, all very worthwhile reading. And like I said, very much appreciate your time and, uh, and looking forward to February when, um, when I'm <laughs> sure there'll be a, a bit of discussion around the book. So, um, Daniel Marvecki, thanks so much for coming on to Spaz Bremza. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks. Peace. Ciao.